Let's talk about this Vulture article about the garbage language that corporations speak. We've talked a little bit about this in the past. The lingo has maybe gotten a little out of hand. The term parallel path. Everything's being parallel path now. Like, let's go ahead with this conversation, but I'll parallel path an email to you at, at a later date. A lot of talk of bandwidth or blocking out time or huddles are always uh, super fun. Or this will require an omni-channel push. So we have to banana boat our marketing budget in order to accomplish this. Or with these key learnings, we can co-create innovative win-wins. See, we're just making up stuff now. Why don't we drop a pin in this and take it offline, Reed? Yeah, I'd hate to boil the ocean. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome back. Welcome again. Welcome back. Anyway, it's episode 161. It's Wednesday. Well, most of you, it's for most of you, it's Wednesday, I guess. But anyway, nonetheless, it's episode 161 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. You know, most of the people listening in will get their podcast on demand. That's a nice tie to the topic of today's show. A lot of them probably work in the gig economy. You never know. Possibly. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to get your podcast streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or just right there in your Chrome browser. Makes no difference to us. Just glad you're listening. If you'd like to learn more about this show and all the other fun ones on the network, a couple of new ones. HCIC Next and How I Got Here both have launched within the last month or so. Be sure to go check those out. Touchpoint.health is the website. And when you are listening, if you're listening on your device right now, if you're listening in Apple Podcasts or maybe some other podcast app, reach down, pick that up and uh, rate us. Give us give us a little star mm -hmm. rating there. That would be super helpful. We would love that. That helps other people find this very show. And uh, we got a cool topic for today, but before we jump into that, let's take a uh, brief pause and then we'll, we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So as we talked about Reed at the beginning of the show, today's episode is going to be focusing on the on-demand gig economy 
and healthcare and the impact it's having to the healthcare industry. Before we dive in and start to talk about definitions, et cetera, when, when I use the term gig economy or on-demand economy or sharing economy or whatever we want to call it, what springs to mind for you immediately? Most of my life? No, I don't know. <laughs> Just kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, to some degree, uh, innovation, disruption, you know, that kind of thing is mainly what, what comes to mind. What brands come top of mind to you? You know, when we're talking about, the, you know, sharing, the sharing economy, uh, you think about the disruption piece. And so typical stuff that we think about or maybe used are going to be like the Uber Lyft type scenario, possibly. Airbnb would be one, I guess. Even VRBO or so, something like that, where you're, you're taking an asset that you have and sharing it in some way, obviously, for, for commerce. I think that hits the nail on the head, and that really jumps right to our first definition, that we are turning to Wikipedia again. We're coming back to our old Ooh. favorite. Wikipedia. The definition of sharing economy on Wikipedia says, it is a way of distributing goods and services that differs from the traditional model of corporations hiring employees and selling products directly to consumers. And in the sharing economy, individuals are said to rent or share things like cars, home, and personal time to other individuals in a peer-to-peer fashion. That lends itself well to like the Airbnbs, the Lyfts and Ubers and things like that. Toro even, where you can rent your car out. Especially Toro and, and Airbnb, I think, are probably the ones that, that are closestly tied to that. Which is interesting because those are two large purchases within your life and you're burning them out. But in any case, I think we see that on a smaller level too. There are also a number of companies that you can you can use to actually hire services from other people where they come into your home, maybe do handiwork or whatever. And that's an important piece to keep in mind as we start to talk about the impact of, of this economy on healthcare. Now, one thing the Wikipedia definition points out is that there are two main types of sharing economy enterprises. The first is commercial business models. That's in which a company provides for a fee a mobile app that suppliers and customers can use to buy and sell goods or services. So a commercialization of that. The other is a not-for-profit initiative, and that's usually based on sort of like the library, right, where you lend books to one another, where those goods and services are provided free of charge or for a modest subscription or entry fee. Yeah, I'm more on the commercial business side of the equation. We need yeah. to figure out how to make no, but but one one that does come to mind. You know, I was thinking, I was trying to think. You know, you've got the big stuff everybody thinks of, and we just mentioned those. And I was thinking, like, what is one of the smaller scenarios? You know, that's kind of interesting. Have you seen Cameo? No. What is that? So basically, it's a place where anyone, but uh, obviously some. I hesitate to say celebrity. They're maybe not as much of a celebrity anymore, but people you would recognize uh, can sign up on this platform and you can hire them to basically uh, record something for you. In, in most cases, it's like a video or audio thing. So like if you wanted some B-list celebrity to like record your voicemail for your phone, like your your message or whatever, you could like hire them through this site called Cameo. So maybe we'll sign up. And if anybody would like uh, the Touchpoint guys to, uh, yeah, nobody's going to want to do that. But <laughs> but that would be that would be an example of this, right? Like it's a, it's a peer to peer model. It's for a fee. In this case, obviously, you could do it through a mobile app. When we talk about sort of the sharing economy or this gig economy, there's also the important part of this equation is that it's not only the marketplace where you can 
do this. It's actually the workers that are part of the gig economy. And that is really what they call the gig worker. And there's another definition, a second definition, two for one today from Wikipedia about the gig worker, which is typically independent contractors, developers, designers, contract firm workers, on-call workers, temporary help that get into agreements with sort of these on-demand economies. So you think about like Uber, the, the driver of the Uber, right? Or TaskRabbit would be the person that goes and do these services in people's homes. And the advancement of this whole concept of gig economy and the gig worker really is squarely set on the digitization of our economy, having now the ability to have these platforms where you can exchange these services directly between businesses and people or people to people, so to speak. I think what's interesting is, and and again, via Wikipedia here, I I think uh, we see more and more people uh, joining the gig economy because we hear a lot about it for one, I guess, but I think because there's more options. You could always be a contractor, a 1099 employee, if you will, right? Like people hire you to do a project or whatever that is. And we saw that a lot in the service industry, I'm sure, uh, for, well, and still do, I guess, uh, for a number of years. But we're seeing it more kind of in this corporate environment. Of course, I've, I've done it for years. And, and so have you gone in project-wise and, and done work and things like that. There's a stat here that 36% of U.S. workers join the gig economy through either their primary or secondary jobs. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's big. I mean, a third of the, third of the workforce out there is uh, kind of in this uh, dynamic of working gig to gig. That has a tremendous impact when we think about the healthcare industry and how we're, we have to kind of adopt our industry to support this. Okay, so now not only are we doing with consumerism that's going on in healthcare, and not only do we have to you know deal with shrinking margins and acquisitions and all the other things in our industry, we're also dealing now with people that are working differently. And so today we're going to talk about a variety of different things that the healthcare industry is doing to sort of respond to that. And then we have a great interview later on today where we talk about a particular company that's actually addressing the square on for physicians. So we'll get to that in a second. But let's, why don't we dive into the first article, which is about on-demand healthcare applications. If you think about on-demand in healthcare, the first thing you want to think about is the delivery of care on-demand. We've talked a lot, you and I read, about telemedicine and virtual care. That, in effect, is, a, is one aspect of on-demand healthcare. It is. And I think, you know, a lot of that is our future because the expectation, you know, people have gotten used to like what we've talked about, the Airbnb, Uber, being able to acquire, use, rent, participate, whatever it is, kind of on demand in in when it makes sense for them. And so people expect that now in the healthcare space. And so when we're looking at this idea of consumerism and how we have to start thinking about our consumers engaging with us, The tables are turning. We've talked about this, but it's turning. It's more on their terms versus this rigid environment that we've historically worked in where we made all the rules. It's also freeing, uh, maybe freeing is not quite the right word, but it's really shifting delivery of care away from the bricks and mortar of a hospital or health system and taking it out in a virtual setting or even in, in an on-demand setting. There, it's not just digital. There are on-demand solutions out there where the emergency response personnel that are out there and arming them with tools, products, solutions that they can actually start to deliver in-home care. That's another extension of this on-demand care. 
This article that we're going to look link to uh, and talk about is called On-Demand Healthcare Applications. So this is specifically about applications. Mm-hmm. And it asks boldly in the question in the title, are they our future? Do you think that on-demand healthcare applications are part of our future, Reed? Yeah, I think they have to be. Yeah, they talk in here a little bit about, you know, we're not going to read the article, obviously, but some of the issues, right? You know, it takes an average of 24 days for new patients to get an appointment and, uh, you know, things like that. So, you know, do patients really want on-demand apps? Well, I mean, I think yes is the answer, the short answer, right? I mean, it's growing because, again, as people do it in their daily life elsewhere, this is the expectation on, on this side of the equation as well. They go through some of the benefits um, as it's perceived for on-demand healthcare apps for patients. So the first one we've talked about, which is convenience. That's the whole idea of on-demand in general is the ability to you know, have it on your own terms and timeline. Having the doctor in your pocket, in your phone, right? Making sure it's available. The, one of the other benefits they, they address here is that the promise of these on-demand applications can be to reduce healthcare spending and hospitalization. I think those are two separate things, but I think they're very, very important and related. They even have an, a quote here from a, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Melnick, who is the lead author and professor at USC Schaefer Center and the USC Price School. And he says, overall, we see a potential for substantial improved patient outcomes and potential savings in total healthcare costs from a home-based care program. He was addressing like high-risk Medicare beneficiaries to this. But I think the whole point here is if you have on-demand care, that ultimately your cost for care and the experience is improved. Yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't be. So that's an interesting one, right? I mean, convenience is, is an easy one because that's almost the definition of on-demand, right? But this reduction in spending is, is an interesting one. Efficiency is the third point. Efficiency in interaction with patients. They say on average, doctors spend 15 to 25 minutes seeing individual patients in their clinic. Since there's other patients waiting, doctors usually don't get enough time. And this has always been the argument for like the concierge medicine and why a lot of doctors do that. They want more time with their patients to be able to discuss the conditions, medical history, things like that. And and I think the way what they're talking about here in, in an office setting, that's it's going to be really hard to get out of that without doing something different like concierge medicine. With the on-demand piece, I think it allows for an environment where they're not as pressed for time and, and you know can spend what's needed with a patient. Another benefit that's kind of highlighted in this article is uh, it says reduce paperwork. Now, you and I both know that you have to address the interoperability issue. We've talked about that in a number of episodes. But yes. if doctors can spend more of their time minimizing their paperwork, on-demand healthcare apps can help to address that by reducing that administrative overhead, so to speak. I think that that is sort of like one of those pie in the sky promises or benefits. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's been Mm -hmm. realized yet. The interoperability between some of these tools and the EMRs is still a big challenge. But I think the point here is that starting to look internally, it can help benefit not only the, the patient, but it can help the care deliverer, so to speak. So the last one here, and I think this one is a real one today, that, that could be uh, realized is uh, supplemental work for providers, for, for doctors or mid-levels or whoever. So the on-demand scenario, again, allows some flexibility, not only for the patient, but also for the practitioner to be able to work those supplemental hours. 
you know, cause you can kind of log in or make yourself available whenever it makes sense. And you know, you didn't have to be full-time, could be part-time, et cetera. Why don't we do this after our break, we'll come back and we'll talk about how we're seeing that gig economy impacting those employees within the healthcare system. And then we'll dive deeper into more about this in the interview. And we'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's kind of continue down this track of the gig economy and, and what that means for healthcare. And so we're going to get into a couple of things, obviously. One of those is kind of the impact of it. But but first, before we do that, let's talk a little bit about these folks and like how, how do they participate? Because we're going to be using them as healthcare systems, right? And in marketing yeah. and communication departments. And this is how you, you leverage subject matter expertise without having to have it 24 seven, I guess, you know, is kind of through this gig economy. How is it worthwhile? And this has always been a pain point uh, of mine. It's just an independent guy for years. How do you afford to do it? Like, how do you have health insurance, right? <laughs> you almost get penalized for creating your own job in a lot of instances. I found an article here, how the gig economy stands to change healthcare. And this is uh, from Med City News. But it talks about in a recent study that estimates 34% of the current workforce belongs to the growing pool of workers and predicts that 40% of American workers will be independent by 2020. Well, here we are. So we're probably in that 35 to 40% range to be conservative. We see the healthcare industry as a whole moving towards this gig economy, right? We've seen nurses do it for years with like travel assignments and things like that. Again, kind of a hybrid model. I mean, they were still employed, but you know, they're moving around, right? Independent contractors are twice as likely as employees to report uh, they do not have health insurance. And so I, I, I believe that. It's really expensive to have health insurance if you don't have that corporate entity subsidizing it. This article points out that 30% of healthcare revenue is coming from increased co-pays, high deductible health plans, patient payments. So that's a significant part of the revenue that's fueling our industry. Now, unfortunately, this article doesn't outline ways of how to reduce the cost of care overall. I think that's a whole other topic that we're not going to talk about. But it puts forth a couple of ways that the industry can, can start to apply gig economy mentality to patient billing. It's funny, they call these gig economy employees using healthcare gig patients. Gig patients, <laughs> yes. I, you say it real fast. I'm like, I'm not, what, oh, who, what is it? You know, is that, <laughs> is that like a step down unit or is that, uh, what is that? But yeah, so they, they talk about, you know, a couple of needs here. And in, in, in broad strokes, it's these folks, they need options, they need flexibility, and they need control. And it's not much different than the rest of us. It's just that with options, you know, only having one solution for payment, such as a hospital payment plan, not terribly helpful. Like that's just my one avenue here. 
And so that leads to this, this need and idea of flexibility. So there should be financing options. It should be clearly defined up front, which don't even get me started on that. We had a show on that about what things cost and all that and transparency and all those types of things. But anyway, you know, how do you pay for this? And how do you know what you're buying? What does it cost and payment plans and all that kind of stuff? In in the idea of control, that's somewhat overwhelming when it comes to paying these medical bills, right? Like you go in and have something on the higher scale of the uh, acuity and, you know, all of a sudden you've got a bill for $126,000. You're working gig to gig, like you might as well just like pitch the bill in the trash because it's like, I, there's no even point in even trying to pay it off. You know, but as you talk through these things, Reed, it's interesting because you're bringing out things that are really resonant within the whole concept of healthcare consumerism. Obviously, paying for things is a little bit, you know, that's always going to be a challenge. We need to reduce our overall cost of care, that's for sure. But the ability to have a pricing as part of your consideration and with many of the things like telemedicine, we see these applications, they're putting the pricing outright. You know, we're going to charge you $40 for a visit, whatever it might be. And then the last piece about control, a big part of that is around being able to pay for it beforehand or pay for it in a very easy way and not have to worry about, you know, I did this virtual care thing, then wait around two to three weeks before I get the paperwork process through and get bills from five different organizations. You need to streamline this. And this is really in alignment with consumerism in healthcare. Okay. Well, let's pivot just a little bit before we get to the interview here and talk about ultimately what does the gig economy mean to healthcare? To employees in the healthcare setting, right? Because not only are there gig economy people that are working outside of the health system, that impetus is moving internally into the health systems themselves. There's a consulting firm called Huron Consulting, and they put out a really, a really interesting blog post that kind of high level touched on some of the ways that you can bring the gig economy to healthcare. The first thing they point out is organizations have to drive out inefficiencies across their business to increase revenue. And one of the major things that is impacting the cost of care and, and, and impacting their way, the ability to increase revenue is looking at labor costs associated with their health system. And then you couple that with a second point where there is this impending skills gap, right? They, we, we hear a lot about there's going to be a shortage of primary care physicians and nurses, a significant shortage. The promise of the gig economy in healthcare may be realized by trying to address these two things. And it's funny when you read all these articles, it's like, you know, by 2020. Well, here we are, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're here. I think this idea they, they point out in here, 20,000 plus on the primary care uh, physician side is a shortage number and, and 200,000 nurses. That's not something you just make up like, oh, okay, well, let's just, you know, really push people to nursing school. Like you're not going to make that gap up in any real amount of time. I think what they're talking about in here is the gig economy allows the empowerment of healthcare organizations to meet those staffing needs ultimately taking into account what we talked about or what you talked about in the first point, which is, you know, being able to help with the kind of lower cost or labor cost. But we've got to consider, you know, the needs of these healthcare professionals, both full-time, part-time, gig workers, all that kind of stuff in a new way. Think about what that impact would be on the healthcare system. Having worked within hospitals for, the, you know, over 10 years now, the way we hire employees is very traditional. 
it, it could be anyone. They all have to go through a new higher orientation, a day worth of training. They have to get certified. They have to have regular access to the intranet to access all of the important information. They have to track their time by punching in and punching out. I mean, this is very old school. And when you're talking about gig economy workers or gig workers, that's not the, the environment that they're used to. They actually put forth the way to embrace a gig economy workforce is start to change the way you actually engage with your employees. One of the things they say is, um, you know, you have to require consistent onboarding and training for your employees. And that is employees that are both in person as well as virtual. So now think about the impacts that would be to like learning, uh, compliance, certifications, all of those things all have to change now. If your worker is, let's say, not even living in your your marketplace, right? They may be virtual in a different country or a different uh, state. Yeah, especially if you think about telemedicine. I mean, you have to obviously seek their feedback. I mean, we, we've done this historically with full-time employees, but how do you not only onboard and train them, but how do you maintain uh, and how do you you know get feedback to better processes and things like that? So there's got to be some sort of a feedback loop. They reference you know Lyft and Uber and things like that. And, I mean you see this all the time with with service based offerings where you know you're rating services after you're done and you know those types of things. Uh, it's an interesting article. We'll put a link obviously in the show notes if you might want to jump out and check it out. If we really want to go deep into this topic, you're in luck because Manoj Javeri, who is a person I interviewed very recently, he actually runs a startup company called Higher Medical. It's a company that's really trying to address the needs of the gig economy doctor in this marketplace. So not only the nurses and not only, you know, telemedicine people, but high-end specialists and primary care doctors, they are also wanting to embrace the gig economy lifestyle. In this interview, we get into the history of, you know, locum tenens, which are for higher um, healthcare professionals, and the new applications and ways that he's trying to develop a marketplace where these doctors can connect very closely to healthcare systems. Let's do that after this break. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I am talking with someone that I just recently got to know, but uh, in the brief conversation I had with them, uh, as well as some of the research I've done on online, I'm excited to have a conversation with them. I think that it's going to be a fun one. And that is Manoj Javeri. Manoj, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Chris. You did a good job of pronouncing my name, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, I know it took me a couple of times. Anyway, uh, we won't get into that. But still, um, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Like I said, I hope you're not too creeped out. But I've, I've researched a little bit about you. And I'm kind of excited to get into this topic. Because when we started talking about what this topic is, it, it's something that I, I didn't even think about. And it's a huge trend that I, I understand to be in the industry. But before we get into that, Manoj, let's, um, will you tell people listening in a little bit about your background and your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me on, Chris. Um, I'm looking forward to it as well. So my name is Manoj Javeri, and I actually grew up in Chicago area. My career started in mechanical engineering. I was doing work in the semiconductor and uh, jet engine area. Thought I wanted to be an engineer, but after a few years of doing that and spending a little bit of time in the Bay Area as well, I realized I wanted to get into management consulting and mix my love for design and engineering with business and ended up working with Deloitte for about eight years in their product development and innovation practice. 
really enjoyed it. Soon after, started my own consulting company locally in Cleveland. Then I randomly at a startup competition called Startup Bikes here in Cleveland. It's similar to Startup Weekend, one of these 54-hour build-a-business hackathons. I just went out of curiosity not to like start a business per se, but I met my current co-founder in higher medical, Dr. Ferris Al-Qadir, at this competition. I heard him pitch an idea. I thought it sounded intriguing. I worked with him for those 54 hours. We quickly became friends, and we, uh, we ended up winning first place in that um, startup weekend type competition and started working on a few things together, some projects, and one of those projects ended up becoming the beginning of Higher Medical in 2017. So Higher Medical is an interesting name, and it kind of uh, tells a little bit about what you do. But why don't we get into that? This is the topic of our conversation today, which is the new type of economy for medical professionals in the space. And it's kind of based a lot on trends that we're seeing in, the, in society. That is namely the gig economy. You know, there's a lot of different terminology that's used in the industry. We always like to use the term freelance economy. There is actually a really good report that's put out every year by Upwork and something called the Freelancers Union. They put a really detailed report with a lot of statistics on what's happening in the freelance economy. Um, and there's some really interesting trends in there. It talks about how you know, approximately 60 million Americans are engaged in the freelance economy in one way or another. And this, you know, people think, oh, well, that, that means Uber drivers or DoorDash people. And really, that's not the predominant population. Uh, it's actually a lot of highly skilled professionals, you know, people who uh, are journalists, people who are graphic designers, engineers, developers, programmers. It's really changed. And if you look at the actual data, it shows a much richer picture of how people are enjoying more time and space freedom, how much they value that. And when people make the shift from being a quote unquote, like part time having a side gig versus being full time freelancers. And more and more people are becoming full time freelancers, which is another trend that we're seeing. One of the industries that has lagged behind a little bit, there's always been travel nurses and per diem nurses and, and doctors who have done uh, something called locum tenens work in the past. Uh, locum tenens is, means it's a Latin term for placeholder. So these things have existed. But we are now seeing uh, much more of an explosion in this type of work. A lot of it's driven by uh, psychographics as well as demographics. And if you look at certain segments of the industry in terms of younger millennials and, and even uh, folks younger than the, you know, even the next generation, as well as older retirees who are uh, a large percentage of the physician population, more and more people want to do this kind of work and have this be their only way of working and have complete time and space freedom and work on their own terms. And, you know, to some degree, maybe that calls back to the area when um, there used to be a lot more private practice and doctors would finish residency and hang their shingle. And the ability to do that now is much more restrained. And in many cases, hospital systems are buying even uh, large and even smaller practices, private practices out. And so the ability to be an entrepreneurial doctor is a little different than it used to be. And so I think that's also driving the trend too. Yeah, and probably the rise in all those coffee shops where they can hang out and do that work. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, that's that's the kind of stereotype that you think about. But I think you're indeed right, right? Some of the trends that we're seeing in the freelance economy is that more and more of these highly skilled professionals are taking that option for a, for a variety of different reasons. Now, you alluded to that it could potentially be generational. Are you seeing that this is in the healthcare space? Is this more skewing towards younger? people or is it younger and older? 
it's, it's interesting. There's so many counterintuitive things out there. You know, this is this is one of them. Like people assume it's it's like the people who are freelance physicians out there are the young folks. If you look at the numbers, 75% of doctors who do uh, freelance work are above the age of 50. Mm, wow. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, you, you started to have uh, this adoption of and this terminology locum tenens, where you have folks who are physicians who are uh, quote unquote placeholders. If a physician gets sick or you know, they go on vacation, maternity, whatever it might be, suddenly leave and quit their uh, W-2 job, then uh, a hospital might need someone to come in and step in as a placeholder until they find someone to come in as a full-time hire. That was the predominant model. And the understanding or the implicit aspect of, of a locum tenens physician in many cases was that they were seen as a, a doctor that was not as good of a doctor, that they couldn't get a full-time job. They were uh, you know, seen as a a less qualified physician and not something that a hospital wanted to do, but maybe had to do because they were desperate. Fast forward, if you look at the last 10 years, 15 years, that has started to change a little bit. And companies like ours are starting to change that perception even more because we are making the process easier and lowering the bar. And now folks who normally wouldn't have done this type of freelance work, now that it's becoming easier to do and there's an online platform and, and these types of things, uh, we're seeing some folks think twice about that. And we're also seeing trends where older doctors who are what we call the semi-retiree persona, they're 50 and above. 40% uh, of doctors in the U.S. Are, are that age or above, and they don't want to work at a W-2 job potentially anymore, and they want to have complete control over their schedule. So they choose to be full-time freelancers. And then many millennials, for psychographic reasons, uh, you know, for lifestyle reasons, they want to actually do this type of work all the time. So that's another reason we're hitting a lot of residency programs as well uh, to kind of get that mentality in early that you can have a balanced life and you can have freedom and flexibility and still make really good money as a physician. And we're making the process easier to do and we're making credentialing easier and all of these types of things. So uh, we're opening up that, that option as well for folks. So you're you're talking through this, and having worked in a hospital in hospital systems, you know, throughout the country over the last ten years, I could imagine that the hardest part of that might be that matchmaking, perhaps, of or like understanding where that demand is. And I know that we live in this economy where other disruptive technologies or disruptive solutions are coming in. Like you know, you mentioned Uber before; that's a great one, or Airbnb, or others where you can kind of try to match supply and demand for a typical health system. You know, that that sounds like challenging. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the Airbnb or the Uber uh, analogies. I also like to bring up Travelocity as an analogy uh, or, or a kayak, something like that. Um, another actually perfect analogy is a company called Catalant. So Catalant is quite a large, uh, extremely well-funded actually by GE and others uh, based in Boston, I believe. They are an online platform for management consulting. And they will sign up large Fortune 500 companies onto their platform who offer jobs. They tend to be contract type positions, might be six months, might be three months, might be even a very short thing that might be needed. And then ex-management consultants who uh, have, a, have a really good skill set want to be freelance management consultants, basically, and work when they want to work. And instead of working for like a Bain or a McKinsey or a Deloitte, they just work out of their home and they sign up for either freelance or side gig type positions on Catalan. They'll browse all the jobs and oftentimes they'll get matched up for things. They'll get alerts when a job matches their preferences. 
if you actually think about it, Catalan is probably the best analogy to our medicals business, because if you replace the Fortune 500 big company with a hospital, and if you replace the management consultant, the skilled, educated person with a doctor, uh, it is actually the healthcare analogy of Catalan. I can visualize what that looks like. Uh, help me understand, like, what is a typical day in the life of like a freelance medical professional, so to speak, right? Do they travel a lot or do they do they tend to stay and, and serve a certain community or marketplace? Or Yeah, I mean, there's there, it's definitely across the board. Um, I would say that a typical full-time freelance position probably has somewhere between six to 10 medical licenses. They do explore different geographies and... They're not always looking just for the highest rate. Uh, I mean, sometimes they might be, but sometimes they might be looking for something that's convenient to them at that time in their life. You know, maybe they find a situation where they're able to do, you know, seven on, seven off in terms of shifts at one location, and they're able to do weekends with another. And, you know, overall, it ends up being about 20 shifts a month, and they're doing really well with 20 shifts a month or 14 shifts a month, let's say, or maybe even a little bit less. Uh, we have a resident who finished recently who's working on our platform and now is an attending. And he has kind of a thing with himself where he, he only wants to work ultimately like up to maximum 12 shifts a month because he lives in Alabama. The cost of living is low and he has three kids. So, you know, that's the kind of doctor he wants to be. And he's an ER doc. There's lots of different modes and lots of different preferences out there. And the message I have is that companies like ours are making those different modalities possible. You can have a lot of flexibility and a lot of uh, you know good lifestyle as a physician now, and not subject yourself to. I mean, often the the term out there that's used is burnout. Yeah, a lot of doctors are burned out. It's not that it's their fault, but uh, they're in situations where you know they're W two and they didn't have any, a lot of other options, and they would much rather kind of lower their number of shifts. But they're finding that ability to have that flexibility difficult. The freelance medical professional does this span. A variety of different medical specialty types, or is it reserved more for you know like people that are primary care oriented or or very highly specialized? What is driving some of the demand also for freelance physicians? There is definitely oftentimes you hear of a shortage, but it's not as much of a shortage as it is a supply and demand mismatch geographically. The specialties that tend to do this type of work the most are hospital medicine, internal, uh, which is an internal medicine physician who works inside the hospital, and emergency medicine, psychiatry, anesthesiology, and critical care is also a big one that we focus on. Uh, we have a couple other areas that we have a, a pretty good concentration on too, like uh, GI and uh, neurology, but we are specialty agnostic. Freelance physicians are used across the board, just more heavily in certain areas. The reason why freelance physician or, or locum tenens physicians were used in the past is in, was in many cases because a rural location uh, just had such a hard time recruiting doctors, for example, that they would have to borrow from more heavily populated, more saturated metro areas. And those doctors would come and travel to the more rural areas. And so kind of an inside out type of thing. And the same type of thing exists today. And at the same time, you see these lifestyle preferences as well emerging and people wanting to exert some of that power and control to, uh, to have the lifestyle they want, if they're willing to travel a little bit. Because uh, really what it is, is it's not a much, as much of a shortage. I mean, there is a little bit of a raw shortage just in general in terms of uh, demand for healthcare services versus the supply of physicians. And that's being driven by ACA, it's being driven by an aging population, um, it's being driven by some other factors as well. Aging workforce of doctors is driving it too. 
but more than anything, it is about the mismatch and allocation of where the doctors are and where they're needed. You know, so take, for example, Cleveland. Uh, Metro Cleveland is saturated with the doctors. You got the clinic, you have UH, you have all these large systems. But if you go down to Finlay, Ohio, or if you go down to, you know, um, some suburbs of like Dayton or other like more rural areas of Ohio, uh, they're dying for doctors and can't get enough of them to move there. For doctors with flexibility uh, and the ability to travel a little bit, it's about getting them there quickly and efficiently. This sounds like a tremendous resource for those doctors that are opting for that that sort of that freelance lifestyle, so to speak. But I can't help but think about health systems and how HR departments at health systems might not be sure about how to, to manage that. What is your experience? Um, how are hospitals, health systems, sort of the people that might be creating the, I guess, the demand to meet that supply, right? How are they responding to this? For them, for the hospitals, like say, take, for example, a hospital that's more in a rural area in Alabama or Mississippi or Indiana, for example, you have physician recruiters inside the hospital, or, you know, we oftentimes are talking with executives in the hospital, and they're really uh, hurting to find people. They want a solution that is going to find them high quality doctors and where they can get a match quickly, right? So it's, it's about two things, right? It's about finding a match quickly. And then once a match is uh, consummated. And once that person says yes, on both sides, we want to move f- further in the process, then it's about credentialing the doctor quickly. And, you know, in the case of higher medical, we use some automation to make that credentialing process even faster. And then going forward, we have plans to even, you know, way beyond make the process 10x, 20x faster through our partnership with a company also in Cleveland called Actual, which is a blockchain-based credentialing network, because that's where the future of credentialing is moving. So it's two things, right? It's about shortening the cycle time, is what I call it, um, between the time where a match is created and a doctor applies to something and to the time where the doctor is privileged to work in the hospital. You want to shorten that chain as much as possible. The second thing you want to shorten or, or prevent is churn. So what people don't realize who are not in this industry is that If I'm a freelance physician and I want to work at five different locations, in today's world, I have to get credential at hospital number one, which in today's world can take three to six months, okay, which is absurd. And what's happening there is they're doing a primary source verification on every aspect of my life as a doctor, including background checks and everything. They're checking my my medical licenses. They're checking my work history. They're calling each person at my previous employer. Could have a list of 20 employers. They're going to do that. They're using faxes. They're using emails, phone calls, uh, snail mail, I mean, everything. They're making the doctor fill out things by hand, and they're not leveraging data that was verified previously by their previous employers. Uh, They're doing everything by scratch, everything from scratch. And then when that doctor wants to apply to hospital number two, the entire process will be repeated, and no previous data that was verified will be leveraged. And then again with number three, again with number four. So the average doctor is credentialed like this 15 to 25 times in their career. So imagine that amount of waste in the systems. What a blockchain-based credentialing system does is it, once something is verified once, it's uh, stored on the blockchain and there's some protections around that where you know that it was verified by a trusted entity. And then that information can be subscribed to by others. And then there's just a lot of just lean practices in terms of process, workflow, and just using, applying some just modern technology that we have to get things completed and filled out faster. So I would say right now we're in phase one of credentialing improvement and, and, and then we're quickly moving into phase two and we're already doing some pilot work with actual. Wow. Now this sounds 
completely transformative for medical professionals, not just in terms of, you know, that sort of that freelance economy or the freelance lifestyle choices that they they're afforded, but really this can potentially set up a marketplace that can can span nationwide, if not even international. Are, do you see that that's the trend, that things are going to start to move that way? I see it as the trend that there has to be, number one, online platforms that enable physicians and hospitals, and, and even beyond physicians, right? There are, there are separate companies and platforms springing up around the nursing industry. We actually have already moved into CRNAs, and we will then next year be moving into PAs and NPs. So our foreseeable market is going to be physicians, all specialties, PAs and NPs, all specialties, and CRNAs, um, those, uh, what, what they call uh, APPs, advanced practice providers. There's got to be an online way to do this. An online platform has to be established, a marketplace where there is no funny business, right? Everything is transparent. So when I describe, like, for example, what Higher Medical is, we are an online transparent marketplace for freelance physicians to connect with hospitals. And, and they're able to do that efficiency, efficiently. They're able to see the exact rate and location once they create an account on the platform. In today's world, and we haven't talked a lot about the traditional industry and why it has such a bad name sometimes too, is because for the last you know, 30, 40 years, it's, it's dominated by very, in many cases, very traditional, very paper-based, uh, fax-based, email-based, phone call-based agencies. Um, what we call the agency middleman. And the middleman often hides information. They don't want the doctor to circumvent them. They want to protect that relationship between the doctor and the hospital. And they don't want the doctor to go around them And because they have such a large markup. They have a 40 to 60% markup. Our markup is a standard 20%. And if you look at other platforms like Hire, it's also quite low. We're able to keep our overhead costs low because it's a digital model. And we're able to Instead of having an army of people making phone calls to doctors, for example, uh, we don't do that type of thing. We use automation to match up doctors and hospitals and send automated emails to doctors or send automated text messages or things of that nature, right? And we're even coming out with a mobile app next year that can send push notifications. We want to change the way this industry functions. And a lot of the gamesmanship that occurs, like haggling over rates and things like that, we think is kind of not something a professional like a physician or an APP should have to deal with. They should be able to. Um, go online, see the rate, see the exact location, and apply. And it sounds simple to us, but that's not how a doctor can do this kind of work right now at, at all. The traditional model is really antiquated, and it's and you're all right. It's agencies, but even within health systems, the the HR systems are are very much siloed. They're the data is not distributed in a, in an open way, and I see that in many many different organizations where you have affiliated versus employed doctors and. You know, it's it just becomes sort of a, a a bit of a mess. But what you're you're speaking to, what the promise of that, I, I mean, I could see that potentially growing in in many different ways. To think about that, the that the the new way to to find good medical expertise, you know, potentially it it could even go to the consumer directly. Or am, or am I thinking too big? Am I thinking too out of the box here? No, not at all. I don't talk about it a lot, but I do see a, a point in time where. Ultimately, higher medical and its large number of freelance physicians that are working on the platform will have the opportunity to also make house calls. Back in the day, you know, the milkman used to come to your home, the doctor used to come to your home. And in many cases, we're seeing that trend where, in, you know, everything is reversing now, right? Like, instead of you going to Walmart and buying everything, 
uh, Walmart delivers the stuff to your home or Amazon delivers the stuff to your home. The whole trend is reversing and we see that happening in physicians too. What's making that easier is, I mean, number one, telemedicine makes it extremely appealing and, and lower cost. And we need to lower the costs in this healthcare system. And uh, number two, you know, medical devices and things of that nature are shrinking. So I envision a future where, you know, hires large group of, of freelance physicians um, many of them can bring a kit, like a suitcase type thing with them. And 90% of the common types of things, uh, you know, if it's like a primary care type visit, can be handled with that suitcase. And they can do like a milk run and, and visit uh, a home in their, in their uh, neighborhood or something and, and see a patient and then go to the next home and then go to the next home. You know, that's another way to be a freelance physician. Telemedicine is also a big part of that puzzle. And then the ability to efficiently match doctors so that they can work in the hospital is also part of it as well. A lot of what people talk about when reducing healthcare spend is that there's too much happening in the hospital that doesn't need to happen in the hospital. And that, of course, is going to drive costs up significantly. I mean, use the hospital when you need it, but how much of what we're doing in a hospital visit and inpatient scenario can be done outside of the hospital and an outpatient facility or even at the, at the home of the patient? I guess the the subtext here is, you know, there will be a day where we can swipe left or swipe right on those doctors that we want, right? <laughs> um, no, I may be simplifying that a little too much, but I totally get your point here about, you know, that's the, I think that's the promise of what these new digital technologies, these new safer and, and, and more well thought out digital technologies can be for the healthcare experience of the future. Manoj, there is so many things that we could talk about, and I certainly want to have you back on the show in the future. But, um, at, you know, for today, though, people listening in, they may want to learn a little bit more about higher medical and also about you. What's the best way for people to, to find you guys online? Our website is www.hiremed.com. So it's uh, www.hyremed.com. And so check us out there. If you're a, f- a physician, you can actually sign up and create a free account there. If you are a hospital, you can request access to start posting jobs there as well. Both aspects are free. You can also uh, send an email to info at hiremed.com. So just info at hyremed.com. And uh, of course, we are on LinkedIn. Uh, we're pretty active in terms of our uh, posting of actually some really good content. Uh, our marketing director um, does a great job and is always posting things that are relevant to this entire freelance economy that I'm talking about. And modern trends, credentialing technology, uh, we're always posting a really relevant things. Think of us like almost like a magazine for the freelance physician economy and uh, on Twitter as well. And I'm also on LinkedIn, so love to connect with anyone. Well, we'll put links to all of that that you mentioned in our show notes. So for those of you listening in, uh, check out our show notes so you can click through and, and follow Higher Med on all of these different platforms. Manoj, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Special thank to Manoj for coming on and talking about all things sharing economy, gig economy, relationship economy. No, I don't know, but I think that's another one of those business terms. Anyway, especially, especially thanks to him for coming on. Uh, again, touchpoint.health website. If you have not signed up for the TPS report, please do so. It's a weekly email. It comes out each Monday uh, with some aggregated news from around the industry. It's a quick read. And then... Uh, 
If uh, you've been listening for a couple of weeks now, you will notice that there is uh, also an audio version of that where Chris mm-hmm. goes in depth on one of the articles uh, from that week. And so that's a quick five minute listen. They're about five minutes on, uh, on each Friday right here in this feed. So let us know what you think about that. Also in that newsletter, there are mentions of upcoming conferences. So we got South by Southwest here around the spring break timeframe. We've got the uh, Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit uh, coming up in Las Vegas, Nevada, April 5 through 7. So anyway, links and more about that in the newsletter. So breaking news, Reed, I'm also going to be keynote speaking at the Minnesota Hospital Association Conference in April. So for those who are listening in in this area, we'll put a link to that in the newsletter and we'll also add that to the show notes here. Yeah. Let's jump to a couple of recommendations and um, we'll uh, we'll get out of here. I, I've got uh, one this week where uh, I've used these for years. You know, everybody has a moleskin, right? And, or some sort of a notebook they, they carry around. And uh, have you ever used the professional ones, the professional version? Professional version? Yeah, there's a pro version of moleskins. Yes. No. I, I like it only because it's set up uh, based on, I think, is it the is it the Cornell note-taking system or some Ivy League school that I didn't go to? But the pages are broken up a little bit differently where there's kind of a piece up at the top where you can, it's made for kind of the main theme. And then you've got the body where you take the notes and then you got like a little small column off to the side where you can have some call outs, but there's a place for the date up at the top. It just works well for like how I take notes and meetings and stuff like that. To do's I can kind of put out in that little side column. So next time you replace your moleskin or have a new moleskin on the uh, purchase list, check. I don't think they're any more expensive. They're about the same price, but check out the uh, professional version of the moleskin. That's a great recommendation. Okay, so I'm going to recommend something that when I recently went to New York City for a weekend, I had the pleasure of going into an Amazon Go store. Oh, boy. Have you been in one of those yet, Reed? No. I heard a lot about it. So the concept is it's basically it is a store where you can visit, I I guess they call it walkout shopping, where they don't have any checkouts, any kind of registers or whatever. We saw one, we went in, and to go in, you have to scan a barcode so they know who you are, okay? So apparently they have RFID, so they associate on your phone your barcode to who you are, and then you can just walk around the store and pick things off of the shelf and then just walk out of the store, and it automatically charges your Amazon account for what you picked up. You don't have to talk to anybody. Wow. I also saw some walkout shopping at Home Depot, but I don't think it was the same thing. <laughs> what was crazy too is, um, first of all, you can you can enable it through your regular Amazon app. If you go to the shopping cart, you can slide over and, and you hit the Amazon Go link under the shopping cart of your Amazon app and you have your little barcode. That's cool. But the other thing was, is that my wife... She used my scanner too. So you you go in and you scan yourself. You hold the phone, you scan it. And then I handed the phone back to my wife who was right behind me and she scanned it. Now I noticed there were two other people behind me and they scanned their own. Somehow it knew that I and my wife were on the same account. And even though we were like three feet away from another person right behind us, it was very easy and we didn't get charged for their food. We just got charged for ours. It's mostly focused on grocery food, right? So kind of like walk out. It seemed like designed for like 
pick up lunches or yeah, you know, pick up a quick sense. drink or whatever. And I know they're going to be expanding the concept and introducing it in different markets, but it was really fascinating. So I'm going to recommend if you have an Amazon Go store in your neighborhood, go try it out. It's pretty cool. And it's an interesting concept. And I have a feeling that in the future, that might be where we're going to be going. Nice. Very good. Very good recommendation and uh, another great episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. As always, we, uh, we appreciate the support. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. We'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.